Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, and policy. Today, I have two very special guests, Dr. John Marshall and his wife, Lisa Marshall. John is a medical oncologist with specialty in GI malignancies, and Lisa is a lawyer by training, his wife, who was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer about 15 years ago. Thankfully, she is doing great and she is cured from her disease. John and Lisa decided to write their story. They wrote their story in a book called Off Our Chests. The book is available pretty much anywhere you purchase a book. I read the book. I enjoyed it immensely. The book discusses the story of Lysa's cancer from both views. The views of the patient herself and the views of her husband, the caregiver himself. But he also happens to be a medical oncologist. And he's the chief of the medical oncology division where his wife is getting her care. And she, so she's getting her care in the institution that he works at. I thought it's fascinating that both the patient and her husband are both writing the book together. But again, each chapter is written by one of them. So I couldn't help it. I needed to have them on the show. I read the book and then I asked both John and Lisa to come on Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about the book. What led them to write the book? What are the lessons learned? Did the book bring them together? What are the things that they regretted saying or not saying? There's a lot in this book beyond just, this is not a breast cancer book. This is a book about two people, a couple that is dealing when one of them is diagnosed with a severe illness that could be life-threatening. But throughout the book, we learn about how each one of them thought, but we also get some pearls of wisdom when it comes to patient care, medicine, and oncology. I'm not going to spoil the book for you. I'm going to ask you just to go ahead and buy the book because it's going to be one of the best books that you will read in 2021. Before I air the episode that I taped with John and Lisa, on May 3rd, 2021, I ask you to subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered, rate Healthcare Unfiltered, write a brief review, and refer a friend or a colleague. You know where to find Healthcare Unfiltered. And without further ado, John and Lisa Marshall, authors of Off Our Chests. Well, I'm extremely honored and really very happy to host the book authors, Dr. John Marshall and Lisa Marshall, um, who wrote Off Our Chests, a book that I immensely enjoyed reading. And uh, you could actually um, read my review about the book uh, in the next uh, few weeks 
we're going to talk about the book um, very casually. I hope you get to learn a lot about what led to re, uh, to writing this book. But before we start, I just want to want to make sure just folks know who you are, John and Lisa. So, uh, John, just briefly who you are and and what you do, and um, same for Lisa, and then we'll get into the book. Well, Lisa was dumb enough to marry me a real long time ago. I talked her into that uh, during college, and uh, we've been married a very, very long time, and we have uh, really supported each other through our different careers. But I found my way to being an oncologist, and I work at Georgetown University, where I've worked forever, um, honestly. And I worked, you stay a place long enough, you end up being in charge of junk, as you know. And so I'm the chief of the division. Um, and uh, focused in GI cancers and lucky enough to have been supported by um, the Rouge family, the Otto J. Rouge family in helping us to establish the Otto J. Rouge Center for the Cure of GI Cancers. And um, sort of one of the underlying themes of my career is to have been jealous of the success of breast cancer. Um, I work, Georgetown Lombardi has been known forever as a breast cancer center, um, really since Mark Lipman joined many, many years ago and has always had that focus. And to be the GI cancer guy in, in that sea of pink has um, really been an uphill battle and one that's made me sparked a lot of jealousy and, and angst uh, about it. And I know, I know uh, Liza's heard too much about this uh, altogether. So I'm amazed that she was willing to write a book uh, together, but um, Liza really is responsible for uh, four fifths of my career, having been there to support, listen to, uh, and, um, and be there for us and our family. Um, I'm curious to know how you did that calculation. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one fifth that's mine? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, uh, so anyway, she has her own career as well, or has had her own career. So I'll let her. And we're going to talk about your jealousy about breast cancer because, boy, do you make it very clear in the book, which mm -hmm. I appreciate your bravery. Lisa, uh, a little bit about you and um, what you do. And um, and uh, we realize that you you do think uh, John is more attractive than George Clooney. But go ahead. Talk yeah. to you. <laughs> He's, he was more um, more readily accessible anyway. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, no, I um, trained as a lawyer after uh, John finished medical school. I went to law school and worked for, I don't know, about 10, 10 years um, doing uh, communications law, representing most, mostly cellu cellular telephone companies. And then as John's career started to take off and he, he literally started to take off on planes several once or twice a week, it became apparent that with our cho children at home, um, that it, we really needed one of us to be around a little more. So um, I stopped working uh, in the early or mid to two knots, I guess we call those, and um, became what I like to call a professional volunteer at that point. So I served on the board of the children's um, school and became involved, um, have been very involved with church for many years and our church, and then also became involved with an organization called Hope Connections for Cancer Support, which actually at that time was uh, part of the wellness community um, and is now its own, own entity here in the Washington area. And I've served on the founding board of that and am now running a campaign for them and have been involved with them really ever since they started in about 2005. You know, and as you read in the book, she keeps us all straight. So she is the 
she's the rudder in the water for so many people, not just me and our children, but so many organizations and people around us. So uh, for those who know you, John, it's a full-time job to keep you in line. <laughs> but you know, the, the first thing, you know, first, I mean, the, the book and, and for listeners who are listening to this, and, and I hope you all read the book. Um, this is really the story of Lisa when you were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2006. And, and how John, as a medical oncologist, became a caregiver for you, and, and, and you both wrote from your own points of view. It's, it's a fascinating way to describe the story, because each one is writing a chapter after another. Um, and I want to delve a little bit into some of the details that struck me as a, as a reader. And I'm an avid book reader, so I, I, I love reading books. But the first thing that I wanted to know is what, and from, from you, John, maybe, why did you decide to write the book? Because this is 15 years later, and I was trying to understand why you chose to write the book 15 years later, and I wasn't able to figure it out. So what got you to say, you know what, obviously you didn't write it today, you started a year ago maybe, but what got you to decide to write the book? Well, there's a longer story. I mean, for me, it ends up being therapy. Um, it was something that I really... It's a message I wanted to share, and Liza was a willing partner in sharing that message about um, our world, our sort of reflections on the world that we live in um, as cancer care providers, as uh, you know, all the different angles, um, patient angle, um, caregiver angle, um, clinical research. It's really a personal look from the other side of the room, if you will, of this industry that I've been a part of my entire career. And I thought we had a a useful story to tell for others, whether that was new couples just entering this club they never wanted to be a member of, or, um, or even, you know, I think about our trainees, our faculty, um, and sharing our story to, in the hopes that it would um, uh, help them too, that it, it was helpful to me to write it, but it helped them too. But the, the real story of why we wrote it is, is friends. Maybe you share. Yeah. Uh, well, we had, um, we didn't really even think about it. I said, I never kept a diary. I never kept a blog. We were sort of, I think, ready to put this in the rearview mirror um, as soon as we were done with treatment. And uh, in 2013, a local magazine actually wrote an article about us, focused somewhat on the topic of the book, more sort of on the, on the humorous piece, how we, how we handled it as with John being an oncologist. And a friend of ours said at the time, you know, you all really should write a book about this which we tried to do in 2013, but our children were still of the, at the age at which they, they weren't needy, but they needed us. And we both were very busy with the things we were doing. And we just really couldn't, couldn't get it off the ground or get enough written to make sense. And so um, sadly it kind of required John having, I think, burnout from the work he was doing. And as you know, he talks a lot in the book about the burnout that his his work and my diagnosis created for him as he tried to make um, treatment more uh, treatment for his own patients more similar to what I had received as a you know as a part of insider of the Georgetown uh, Lombardi community. So um, anyway, his burnout led to our, his being able to take a sabbatical, so silver lining, and which gave us uh, the opportunity to take some time to work finally on the book, really to have uninterrupted uninterrupted four months that we could really write and figure figure out how we were going to put it together and go through all the process of getting it published. And Lisa, the, the, the book has one chapter written by John, 
one chapter written by Lysa and, and so on. And there's last couple of chapters written by you both together. Was this your idea, his idea? Like, how did you, because I, I actually, when I first um, started to read the book, I was wondering how you're going to do it because I didn't know how you're going to both write the book. And then I realized the structure, which I really enjoyed. Whose idea was that? Well, really, it was our friend Marianne Segedy Mazak, who is a uh, who's had the idea for the book originally, and is a is an editor and a writer herself, and um, so she really, I think, is the visionary of how this book got put together. But what she recognized, I think, and and we we veered a little away from this. The original concept was more of the kind of looking at telling the same story, but from different perspectives, which we do in there, but it has gone beyond that to, I think, a more universal, um, you know, allowing John to really speak about a lot of the things that positions he has taken over the years on cancer care and, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly, I guess, um, of cancer care in this country and, and what what sorts of things might be done to improve it. So um, it's, as I say, it, it was a, pro it was a process, but, uh, but we have to give Marianne credit for, <laughs> for the, the initial idea. And, and John, did you, like, did you compare notes? Because sometimes like I still remember, there's one chapter when you talk about the wig, the wig as Lysa saw it, and then the wig as John saw it. Did you, do you compare his chapter and say, oh my God, what did you just say? Well, actually, we wrote almost, well, we wrote a book and a half because we <laughs> cut out a lot of what we wrote um, in the end. But so before we had seen each other's, um, we went to separate places. We were on sabbatical in Oxford. It was a beautiful place um, at Campion Hall. And I would go down to the library and Liza would stay in the flat and we would spend the morning you know, uh, writing. And we didn't actually show each other what we had written until November, I guess it was, uh, of, of that academic year. And, and then we compared notes and we found out we in fact had both written about the wig and had written very differently about the wig. And um, so, um, no, we didn't compare notes. And in fact, when we first read each other's uh, versions, <laughs> Um, we had to survive that maritally, right? So that, you know, because we wrote very personal things that was probably for the first time we said any of that to each other is in what we wrote, right? We would never have, never would have said it in real time. And in fact, the importance of the time gap you brought forward of the 15 years, I think allowed a lot of that to mature and be safe space now to actually say it to each other. Um, and I think... I suspect most couples going through a cancer diagnosis like this have these thoughts that this is in their heads, but they can't say them. And so maybe just maybe if they read through this book, they'll look at each other and say, you thinking that? You thinking that? Mm -hmm. um, and open some discussions. Now, you start your book by courageously admitting how much you hated breast cancer research and breast cancer, <laughs> you know, um, and I was reading like, oh my God, uh, I didn't know. I mean, I knew of John, of course, everybody who is a medical oncologist knows of John's accomplishment, but I actually was not aware of that side of you, John, in terms of what we call it, the jealousy of, of breast cancer. Now, tell me the truth. Were you scared to admit this to the entire world when you wrote this? You know, I made the first part of my career doing that. I would open every every talk with what ended up being a brown ribbon joke, right? So, and I would always, in fact, pick on breast cancer or at least call out the 10 times more funding than all the other cancers and, um, and the jealousy 
uh, and yes, some resentment that I had as we were rolling out, you know, an oxaloplatin or an arenatecan or some medicines that had some impact, um, but um, you know, not not really realizing the true benefit that I was watching in the breast cancer space. So we may need to take a pause. <laughs> no problem. So and and then you know, even in the in the book, you have a lot of several of uh, chapters have actual excerpts of an entire lecture you gave or something. And I, do you keep those? Tell me, help me understand these because like if, if you have the title of the lecture and what you gave, and oftentimes you're obviously bad mouthing breast cancer, but. Um, <laughs> But I'm trying, like, were these lectures that you keep a script of uh, or you just re recounted? They're recounted, but they were, they were things I wanted to get off my chest. Uh, and we, I wrote them down in sort of book format. And then uh, our editorial team thought it would be smart, actually, to sort of add a third voice to the book. And that is my voice on a podium or in front of an audience. And because um, I spend a lot of my time there. And basically that's where most of those messages were initially delivered and still to this day, depending on the, the group in front of me delivered. So um, we thought that would be a good way to, in a way, break up the book a little bit and make it a different sort of book. At one point, I, 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 we all saw it as a different kind of book. I mean, I, I sort of saw it as a how-to book. So if somebody was just being diagnosed with cancer, how do you navigate a cancer center? How do you, you know, what do you need to know about cancer and clinical trials and all of that? And it of course became more than that, but I didn't want to lose those elements. So I thought it was important to give some of those basic overviews for the lay reader. You know, I was trying to assess the book um, uh, at a very high level. And at least in my mind, I was thinking, there's a lot in the book about who you both are as people, just people, not necessarily as a doctor and a lawyer, or just as people and as a couple. And there are elements of the book where you talk about certain things pertaining to healthcare and cancer in general and cancer care. And I think, you know, they intersect, but I just found it very interesting. And I always wonder as a physician, when you are taking care of all patients, how much are you willing to put of yourself out there that people become aware of that? For example, you know, we learned a lot about the importance of religion in your life um, and church, and, and which is great, but you could imagine that you know, some patients may not relate to that. It's like almost politics. Something I think religion and politics are always tricky because you are going to take care of patients of all kinds of political affiliations or religious beliefs. As a book author and as a physician who is going to interact with the public, do you think about that? Do you think, should I really tell them about this or do, do that? What, what's your thought process when you were talking about that? Well, we're not very secret. We live our lives on our sleeves. We tell people what we think, but if this is a different level. What we wrote is an even more deeper level because it's really what you're feeling at the moment too. But with my patients, and that's part of, part of why the burnout really occurred is that after 
my, you know, experience with Liza going through the cancer, I, th I thought I was a great doctor. I thought I was the best doctor ever, as many doctors do. And uh, then having experienced it from the other side of the room, um, it really, I really realized that it can be even better, but it involves then a personal connection. And um, when you have that personal connection, when you give yourself to your patients, particularly in our line of work, you know, body and soul, mind and soul, then you're at risk because particularly in my kind of practice, um, a very high percentage of the patients will die on my watch. And, and so it hurts, you know, how do you, how does a physician, do you keep your objectivity? The more you give up your objectivity, probably the better doctor you are in some ways, at least in, in, you know, in personal care of a patient, but you, you also then can't maintain that. So you've got to, you've got to balance all of those things. And, you know, the, the experience with Liza's cancer and our experience afterwards was really what, what taught me all of that. I was just gonna say, you talked about your faith with your patients before oh, that yeah. or no yeah so but um, i wouldn't i wouldn't this wouldn't be on you know i wouldn't have like insignias on my white coat no um but if a patient expressed faith um to me um uh they would i i would say i understand and i i you know because different people bring in to be blunt different people bring in different gods um and so or what their definition of of you know, religion and faith is. And I wanted, I, so I wasn't exclusive or in fact, evangelical in any way, in fact, the opposite. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if it, I, I still, you know, if a patient said, would you pray with me, doctor? Uh, generally, I'm like, no, because that was, even though we may share the same religion and the same God, that was crossing the line. It's sort of like the chapter on never go to funerals. That's crossing the line, right? That's a, an expression of faith um, that uh, to me is, is, is um, too personal. So still you want me over here as your objective physician um, and I can only blow that wall down so low to, to, be, uh, to be as close as I can with that patient without it hurting me too much. Yeah. Lisa, you were diagnosed with this disease years ago, um, you know, a decade and a half before you wrote the book. As I was reading, you definitely recount every detail in, in a very, uh, in really, a, uh, I felt I was with you. I mean, I felt I was with you in the room. I felt I was with you when you got your bone scan. I felt with you when the other doctors were talking about your case, leaving you in the room by yourself as if you don't even exist, which is something I want to talk about. But the one thing I, I want I want you to tell us about is how you how did you tell your children how did that conversation go? Try to bring us back to that moment. Yeah, so we decided really that the day I we got the diagnosis and uh, you know we got the diagnosis we went in in the afternoon immediately for scans. Uh, so things happened very quickly for me. Uh, because um, because John could make them happen quickly, and I think my doctors could as well. Um, and so we decided we really, the children had been at my parents' all afternoon. It was strange. Our daughter had seen John at school, which was strange. There were, you know, there was no, well, there was a way they probably would have, we could have gotten away with not telling them, but it, it didn't feel right, as John says. I mean, we are not only with other people, pretty much hearts on our sleeves, but we are with our children as well and and tell them, 
you know, what's going on in our lives, maybe at high level, but generally. So we felt that we needed to talk to them that evening. And um, we really just, we talked through what we were going to say. And John nicely volunteered to do it on the theory that he was one more experienced and two better at controlling his emotions, perhaps, well, not perhaps, definitely better at controlling his emotions than I am. So we gave them a, a, a simple, you know, mom has breast cancer. Um, she's she had these tests today. She will have surgery. She will have chemotherapy. She will have radiation. She's fine right now. We will, we, you know, hope she will continue to be fine. And do you have any questions? And really neither one of them had any questions or really reacted in much of a they weren't very shocked. As I say, I think our daughter had had a pretty good sense there was something going on anyway. And uh, our, our son was just at a stage of life in which he was focused, focused much more on, you know, as I say in the book, he was focused on girls and applying to high schools and, you know, playing soccer and that type of thing. So anyway, they both reacted in their own personal way. Um, but, um, you know, I think I think they both they both took in the information and used it in the way that they needed to use it. And and again, we were pretty open. I was bald around the house. Uh, they helped, you know, they helped us pick out the wig. They, they were involved in it as much as we could involve them in a way that wasn't weird, I guess, or we hoped wasn't weird. You know, our kids are cancer savvy, right? Yeah. They've been on rounds for God's sakes. They know patients who've died. I mean, they know people who've died of cancer. So they were, this was not a new language. It was not new. I mean, even for your fairly young kids. So um, and, and, you know, I also feel very strongly about this because, you know, generationally back when my mom died of cancer that you didn't talk to kids about anything like this. You, 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 you know, I, I never said goodbye to my mother. So I was not going to have this happen to my kids. They were going to be in the loop. They were, <laughs> and it almost became a new mission for me to make sure that my patients' children knew what was going on, right? So I, part of my first visit um, with, a, with did it this afternoon is what do your kids know? Do your kids know you're here? Um, how much do they know about what's going on? Because um, I actually think it's critically important for that to be uh, as transparent as the kid can handle um, and not have two different discussions going on, both for the patient and for the family. And you do talk about your mom, John. Um, I thought it was very emotional uh, the way you describe a your relationship with her, and uh, I kind of sensed that there was some unfinished emotional, un not I don't want to say business because it's really more emotional. Just some unfinished things inside you about that relationship. And maybe writing about it helped you. But I, as a reader, I could totally tell how much you loved your mom. I mean, all children should love their mother. But there was something special about that relationship. Yeah, I, and it's one of those things that I, it's hard for me to put my finger on that. Um, uh, you know, was, uh, I, I, maybe it was just me. Maybe it was my, or my age or, or those things. But uh, we've been talking to others because of the book about this. And it's, you know, who became oncologist. Every oncologist has some sort of, family event that inspired them that we're going to prove it to the next group that we can do better. Right. So it's, uh, um, you know, it is, I'm sure it's a motivating factor for a lot of what I do. Um, there's also the 
point though, when you die young, you have a really big funeral. Um, I didn't want that for Liza. <laughs> what a nice, tiny little funeral for Liza. I don't even want to be at Liza's funeral. So uh, if I can, I'll go first. But um, uh, the, the thought of having to relive that when Liza got diagnosed with what was a bad breast cancer, I, it just kept going there. Like, I can't do this again. I don't want to do this again. And so I'm very, very grateful that we didn't, but um, yeah, that's, that's, it stings. And it's, that's true for a lot of oncologists. So I'm not do, do you ever, that. do you ever think whenever you hear about a non-Hodgkin lymphoma new therapy, do you ever go back and think about your mom? Oh, that she'd be cured. I mean, she, says that a lot. I say it a lot. <laughs> um, that if she were getting the diagnosis today, she would um, probably be cured. And and I mean, she got cobalt radiation, for God's sake. So um, the kinds of things that I know about now and knowing what she had, um, you know, CAR T and transplants, and even if she was in trouble, I mean, I still know it's a very bad disease and people die from it. I get that, but um, the odds are she wouldn't have. And, um, you know, going back to the cancer story, it's, um, by the way, Lisa is more funny than you. I just want to make sure you know. No, oh, she's that, not. You're nice to say she's that. She's not but, at all. And I'll funny. hold that over. I, 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 the, you were able to get me to laugh. I, I'll share with you that, you know, you talked about something that happens all the time. You, you say, why do doctors talk about important things when patients are still under anesthesia? <laughs> and it's true. It is true. I've seen it all the time. Like, you know, it, it is, you know, I, you know, had my parents undergo endoscopies. They're like still, you know, my mother still had not woken up from the colonoscopy. The gastroenterologist walked in and he just bluffed something. And my mom is like, in la la land. Like, I don't know. She's like, <laughs> but I, had, I had a colonoscopy last June and I, the doctor, well, John came, no, maybe the nurse did anyway. And I said, well, I haven't seen the doctor yet. And they're like, yes, you did. <laughs> Literally at the moment had no memory of it. Never mind later. So, But it, it is true. And I do think it's really, I mean, these are things that we, 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 don't really think about because you know we 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 they just happen in healthcare but but i really want to bring back several concepts that you both talk about maybe john discussed a little bit more because i felt he was ranting about a few things but they're really important i don't know if they are pearls of medicine or oncology but but they're really important for all of us and as a caretaker of my own parents as well as a physician myself I could totally relate to this. So one of them is shared decision-making, okay? So I, I don't know. I mean, I, shared decision-making is a good concept when you write about an editorial and you write a paper and you sit on a podium and you talk about this, whatever it is. But Lisa, you are the patient. I mean, at the end of the day, you come out several times and say, well, I can't make these decisions about something I don't understand very well. Like, what, what do you expect me to decide on... AC plus tax, all I can't make that decision. Right. So take take me through your lens about shared. When you hear shared decision making, what what tell tell me about that? Well, I I think you're right to start with the fact that it is it is the goal I think for both doctors and and patients that we would all like to think that we can make these decisions together and that the patients can have as much input as they want to have while getting from the doctor as much comprehensible information as they can. And I, you know, I think there are, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I think there are a lot of 
legal ramifications of that, which also play into this, which we probably don't even think about, but, and, and maybe that says that we need to restructure the way, you know, our laws are written, the way HIPAA is written, that kind of thing. But it, it's, it was definitely very difficult for me and, uh, you know, the source of much anxiety, I would say, as I was, you know, as, as I received what felt like an information dump, e again, even of, of words that I understood, but they didn't go together in a way that made any sense to me. And then the idea of, of not having, not understanding what the implications of any of these decisions was going to be. What, what did side effects really look like? I mean, here's a list of side effects, but I'm, I'm filling out ones now for, um, you know, the COVID vaccine and for, um, and, you know, it asks you about a symptom and, you know, there's a huge range from, you know, a headache to, I think I have a brain tumor. Um, and yet there's only a box to check headache. And that so it's, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, so I think, it, you know, it is, there, there's a real, there's a spectrum in those things that perhaps we don't recognize. And in the cancer case, I think perhaps don't explain very well to patients about what, what the spectrum of each one of these side effects might be. I, you know, I think doctors are chicken when, when they say, I, I'm, you know, it's your call. You have to decide in the end. I mean, lean into these things. What would you do? Not if it was your wife or your father, what would you do if it was you? That's what I always teach the fellows is that what you should be thinking about is what would you do if this was your diagnosis in this situation to you, you know, more than anybody else in the room. Um, and then, Take the patient there. I mean, give them the give them the rationale of why you decided that. What are the trade-offs you came to personally, and say, well, that you may have different values than I do, but at least you know, pick one. I mean, I think this uh, this you know concept of a patient feeling awkward and asking us. Uh, you know, I hate to ask you this, doc, but what would you do? That shouldn't be an embarrassing unusual question in the end it should be this in, surgeons are great at this you need this operation you need it today we're going to do it this way and here's your recovery and i don't really think you have a choice i mean that's what surgery does and you know with us it's obviously vague more vague than that because our endpoints are less clear uh to uh to I, patients I think share, less clear. shared decision making implies that there is symmetry of information right. between the physician and the patient. And there is not, I mean, I'm sorry, but your patient is not gonna know about colorectal cancer like you do. So, so that's where the difficulty is, but you bring up a good point. I mean, the values, right? I mean, I think you, do, you can, I have had patients actually in my career, John, that have declined curative therapy because it would cause hair loss. I have had that. And I will respect that. I said, this is the chop regimen I will get, but you will lose your hair. I'm like, I'm not going to get chop. And, and you, you, you feel like you're going to bang your head against the wall, but you got to respect the wishes. But it's, it, aside from that, I struggle with it in terms of the, of the, of the shared decision-making. I think you both really outlined this really nicely, the complexity of that. The other way where you actually bring in the shared decision-making into the equation when you talk about clinical trials and I thought this was really fascinating because one trial, Lisa, you declined participating in and another trial you agreed to participate in. And, and I want to understand from you why you declined one and agreed to another. I also want to understand from you, do you really feel the consent form that they give trials? I mean, you know, are even like, do you even read, do you understand what you read there? 
Yeah, well, I, well, I will start with your last question first. And I still have my consent packet that I, you know, that was one of the things I looked at as my, you know, my research and in this book, and I, I still don't understand it. And I've come out the other side of it, right? I mean, I had so you know a lot of things. I mean, it's pages and pages and pages that, you know, people. I mean, just a time commitment to read it through when you're trying to make these decisions and, you know, all the things that go with that. But um, uh, why I you're referring to the neoadjuvant trial? Is that the that I declined? I think um, no, the one uh, the one trial was like a, just a biopsy. I think it was just uh, it, it was not interventional. Uh, no, it was new adjuvant. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. New yeah. Okay. John remembered. I I also wasn't I wasn't sure which one was. Um, that one I I because my breast cancer presented in such a strange way. I, I there was no nobody had any idea at that point uh, where the where the tumor actually was. We just knew I had it in my lymph. And the way that trial was described to me was it's going to make your tumor smaller, and then you know we'll be able to. Um, you know, then we can decide about what kind of surgery to do. And I sort of thought, well, if we don't know where the tumor is to begin with, how are we going to know after I've done this trial? And I, I would say I had, I mean, talk about shared decision-making. I think I, I did, well, one could argue whether it's good input or not, I suppose, in, in retrospect, in that I think the neoadjuvant, I mean, that is how, how breast cancer treatment is administered at, um, now. But my surgeon was not enthusiastic for those reasons, I think for staging reasons and for surgery reasons about my um, getting into getting into that trial. But having said that, I've signed up, I think, for every other trial that came my way other than choosing between a couple of trials uh, when um, for, for um, adjuvant chemotherapy. And I do really, you know, heartily believe in in patients participating participating in clinical trials. But I think actually Liza got, well, I may be treated differently, probably because I was sitting next to her. Because in this case, we had in the same team, multidisciplinary team, this, and both of these people are still very good friends of ours. So the surgeon was leaning towards surgery and the medonc, member of my division, was leaning towards neoadjuvant, this newfangled neoadjuvant concept at the time. And they both had their, expressed their preference um, and then sort of left it to us, right? So we had, we, normally, you know, with a, a single team like that, the current standard is they come out with one joint recommendation, right? And not even within the team saying, well, you could go this way or that way. And so uh, in the end, I think we both sort of, I, for me, it was get it the hell off of there. I mean, it was like, I was afraid of it. And for the same reasons, I think you're saying, I was just unpredictable, sudden, acute, really right below inflammatory. And I just, I could just see if it didn't work. I mean, so my own personal emotion here was that if the chemo, if she was even in the 10% that doesn't work frontline, she was going to have chest wall involvement for the rest of her life and never be, and I know what that looked like. And um, so it was like, if this is our window, let's do it. And I think you talked about values too, in the shared decision-making. And I really, I mean, I, I, I wasn't that concerned about losing my breast. I mean, it wasn't my choice. I wasn't thinking before I had breast cancer, oh, you know, let's just get rid of those. But um, in that in that moment, that just did not seem like that high a priority to me. And it seemed like the safer, safer route. I mean, for for a PG rated book, I mean, John Marshall comes out and says he's not a breast guy. He says that in the book. <laughs> yeah, thank God. <laughs> I married the right woman. Yeah. The entire world now knows. 
Um, but uh, you know, Lisa, you don't have to guess what kind of guy I am. So that just, just it gives everyone brain, else brain. open the mind. Yeah. Lisa, I want to go back to what you just said um, about the dumping of information because I I do think. I'll share with you this. Sometimes if I, I take my, my mom to the doctor or my dad to the doctor, this is a classic. Like I'm sitting with them, they're sitting there and the doctor is speaking, whatever it is. There's also a nod, yes. Now everything is nodding, nodding, nodding. I walk out. It's like, what happened? Like, what did they say? I'm like, what do you mean? Why, why are you nodding? Like, just like ask. I'm trying to be the caretaker. It's very difficult for me to take away, you know, to, to be the physician and the caretaker. And I do sense John struggled with this a little bit. But how much with the dumping of information that you were getting was because you were the wife of an oncologist? And there's, you know, it was difficult. I, I don't like, I, I always wonder when you, when the physician walks into the room, they still know that you are John's wife. You're not, quote unquote, an ordinary patient to them. Right. Not, not only you would be a VIP by virtue of who John is, but also you're educated. You, I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel there's... Right. Yeah, no, I think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, and I think that there was language. Certainly, nobody had to tell me what a clinical trial was. And I mean, I say that lots of people don't know what clinical research is. And, what, and you know, obviously, John was very involved in it. So, so there was a lot of language I did know already. And I knew what chemotherapy was and, um, you know... Right. I mean, I had I had some vision of what this was that was pretty accurate at, at a level that was probably higher than many people's. I even knew that there were different kind of, you know, receptors, hormone receptors and things like that. So while triple negative had to be explained to me, at least I again knew what an estrogen receptor was and a progesterone receptor. So, yes, I think I, I think it probably did lead to some of these conversations being at a um, at a higher level perhaps at a higher level. And perhaps there were some assumptions in there that I knew more than they thought I did about the drugs, like, you know, and that what the names of the drugs were and what they did and that type of thing. One of my favorite sections she does is she's sitting on the crinkly paper and the, and I was the caregiver, but in a white coat, I think. I was You're going to be able to tell he hasn't read my part of the book because that's not quite the story I tell. I'm anyway. sitting on a chair. <laughs> oh, you're sitting on a chair. I don't know. Um, he has. I'm anyway, and the, the, we started talking in, in tumor board pace right yeah, we were skipping yeah. things and we were and I, we all knew what was going on and the poor thing was just you know it's like all these he, words he, flying does, over. he does say that i mean I, that's one of the things that i mean she was saying that you know they're talking about me and as if i don't even exist in the room and i do think sometimes physicians do that all the time but one of the things that was really also kind of um, you know the burnout and, and as a busy oncologist becomes honestly very difficult to even be a caretaker at the same time. I mean, it's very clear how busy you are. And I don't know, John, if 2006, you were the division chief back then or not, but but pretty much you've got the administrative responsibilities, then you've got the research and the clinical care. And even Liza says she had to schedule her emergencies on non-Tuesdays, like she can... Uh, <laughs> Like, she how, was very nice that way. She was she's very, <laughs> I told you she's thoughtful. And just how difficult was it for you to really rearrange everything around Lisa's schedule? Because honestly, sometimes I even struggle to get an appointment for something like it's, it's so our life is so fast paced. No, I, I, in, I say I failed at it. Um, Lisa says I didn't do that bad a job, but 
it was. I do, just so everybody can hear. It. I affirm <laughs> that I say. I am um, okay. I think you did okay. You know, I, I it 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 made it possible for me to sort of keep juggling because right when you're young and you have cancer, you have somebody has to keep working to pay for the insurance and get the insurance, and somebody has to watch the kids and manage those things. Even though Laz was able to do, I would say, nine, plus ninety plus percent of everything through all of that. But to be there as sort of a, a helper and supporter, we had great community. I learned the value of the village uh, through all of this. And they just came out of the woodwork and helped us. And I learned to accept it and welcome it. Um, had to help manage it, but accept it and welcome it. Um, so, um, so that I could keep going. And, you know, initially everything kind of slowed down and the people around me let me slow down. But I, I have to tell you those few weeks while first diagnosed surgery um, and all of those things, you know, and, and in my own clinic, it was very hard to keep my mind on the patient in front of me, knowing what was going on. So it took all, all my concentration powers at that point to do that. But when things settled, and this is where I think I sort of, uh, I don't know if I was running away or slipped or whatnot, but when things, you know, she's in her cycles and the like, I, you know, I, I started back on the road again, um, the, and not as much early on and, and it ramped back up over time, but you know, the lifestyle of, you know, you're, you're asked to come give a talk somewhere. Well, it's, it's exciting and you want to go do that. And it's a break from your day job and, and it's fun to do. And so, um, I said yes to those things. And part of that's part of your career too. You're expected to go to these meetings. You're expected to be, uh, present. Um, and, um, uh, so I, I did do that probably more than most would have done, I think. And so uh, that's where I think I, I fell down. But I, I, was, I relied on others, relied on uh, so many people to take care. The other concept you both talk about is second opinions. I found it a very interesting concept. And, and I'm with you, John. I've always recommended to my patients, <clears throat> even if it's a run-of-the-mill type, like if you feel comfortable, get a second opinion. But you also admit that you wanted Lysa to choose Georgetown. What are your thoughts with the second opinion, Lysa? And what made you choose one place? Was it because John worked there, you chose that? Or from a, from a lens of a patient who gets several opinions, what are the factors that make you decide where, to, where you receive your care at the end? John working there was probably a big part of it in that I, I knew this was going to be talking about trying to manage. It was going to be complicated for both of us. And the, the logistics of getting to the other doctor's office for chemotherapy were going to be very complicated and require bringing probably other people in and, you know, feeling as I'm not, I'm not good at imposing on people. And I felt as if we were imposing on people enough. So I think that was part of it. I, you know, I just really love Georgetown, I will say. I mean, I, you know, I have actually been, I've been going to Georgetown for, for doctors since before I knew John. I mean, I grew up here. And so um, I, uh, I really, it was a, it was a comfortable place to me. It was a warm place to me. Uh, I won't say I, I knew my way through it. I still needed a map for about the first half of chemotherapy, probably to find my way from one end of the hospital to the other. But uh, it's, you know, and I mean, it's a world-class, it was a world-class care, it is a world-class cancer center. I, I, you know, to turn that down seemed not to make any sense unless there were a really strong reason. You know, the privacy concern was a real concern for me, whether I would be comfortable 
I mean, talk about not understanding the spectrum of side effects. You know, I, I'm not sure I really could forecast how my privacy might or might not be, you know, I, well, I don't mean invaded, speaking but. Of, speaking of privacy, John does mention that it was like when the MA calls the name in the hallway <laughs> with the name HIPAA went out the window. That is one right. of my pet peeves when I was in clinical practice. I actually, I, I, I tried very hard to stop that trend. It was impossible. So there was no privacy. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So I, I'll never forget when we were fellows, one of, we had just had our first, Liza had just had Charlie uh, at, at Georgetown and the fellow comes and we were in clinic and it was busy as you know, when you're a fellow and she comes up to me and says, so I see Charlie's Billy Rubens coming down. So <laughs> she's gone into my son's chart. Right. And, and like, really? Um, so, uh, you know, was, you, you realize that, you know, when the EMRs first came out, it was sort of a curiosity because you can peek into whatever anybody's doing. So I honestly, part of, I really wanted her to go get another opinion so that she could choose that privacy issue. This was a world-class private practice group that could take care of her too, take care of us too. But so in the end, again, we're not very private. So, yeah. And, and you talk about the privacy as well. Even, even John, when you got the pathology report of Lysa, and you kind of were surprised about it because like, well, I mean, you, I mean, you, you go through this and I think as a reader, I did feel that there's, all, I think you, I would have loved to know a little bit more about the, 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 the conflict there, but I, I thought you mentioned this, that why did I get the pathology reports? Why did they see me on that? Yeah. I still don't know. Yeah. Um, still don't know. There's a, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, I mean, John always has a sense of humor, but there are a few, you know, some of these uh, sarcasm thing that uh, definitely comes out. I mean, I would say the one thing uh, made me laugh and one thing made me nervous. So the one thing that made me laugh and when you say, you know, what happened to Lysa may have been, I, I, I read this verbatim, retribution for my long disparagement of the breast cancer machine, uh, you know. John, karma is a bitch. You know that. Yeah, no. So this was it. I was getting it. Uh, a big karma hit right there. Well, I, I like to point out that I was the one who got it. So I just. <laughs> yeah, but 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 the one thing that uh, and you'd have to help me through this. I was a little bit. I I read this a uh, couple of times. I was trying to understand. You were talking about telehealth and um, and how things might change if you just go into a drive-through, you tell people your symptom, they tell you your diagnosis, and you, you're, you're painting kind of weird picture to where medicine was heading. And then you were able to uh, somehow, um, like below the belt kind of kick into direct to consumer advertising somewhere, even when you were wearing a nice white coat and so forth. I, I was, you confused me there. So what, what was going on through your mind that was you writing all this? No, I, I clearly think that healthcare is becoming increasingly automated and remote. Um, and a pandemic has, has helped make it such. Um, there are some efficiencies to that. You know, the second opinion you're talking about, much easier to get from almost anywhere in the country now. Uh, you don't even have to go there. You can just dial up and get your second opinion. But, um, you know, we, you, you, you have to beam the prescription over to the correct pharmacy, then, you know, it has to clear all the financial hurdles. And then if you, you know, that it, it does your retina scan and you're still the same person, they'll dispense your, you know, your penicillin. So, uh, and, and what the role of the physician is going to be, you know, we, we work together on trying to make precision medicine happen, right? So is there going to be a time when, 
you know, you come up and, you know, give a little blood sample or you spit in a cup and, and it basically, you know, tells you what's going on with you and, and you don't need the, the physician because the AI and the, the, the you know, will, will, will generate it. But I do think driving patients, the direct-to-consumer issue is sort of, to me, different. Um, we really are the only country that does all of this marketing. I'm part of that marketing too, in some level. Um, I've certainly done that business in my career, and but the were you, um, ner were you nervous somebody will call you on this and say why did you write that part? Sure, I mean I think everything about this book. I'm very nervous about tomorrow, quite honestly. Books land tomorrow, and people that maybe aren't as friendly or understanding, um, we're going to read them. And uh, we, um, uh, but we do want, uh, you know, the idea here is that ev everybody's tell it the way we see it. And it's no one group that's perfect, right? We're all, we're all flawed. Uh, and we all could do a better job at, at uh, improving outcomes. The goal here is to cure patients of cancer. That's our goal. How do we best work together to do that? We're spending a lot of money already. How do we spend it more wisely? And, and the hope is that just that reflection, just to have a discussion about this point is good. Right, is to, it gets us thinking about it. Liza, as a patient, does direct-to-consumer advertising bother you? Um, it bothers me on a a global level. I would say. I mean, I, I I don't I don't think it's a good idea personally. I guess, but I I'm not. I don't think I'm personally influenced by it. Maybe that's because I don't have any of the the at least at this point have any of the diseases um, or issues that are being marketed to. Uh, but I, you know, I mean, talk again about, an, you know, an information dump. I mean, the idea of being, that I, for me, the idea of being able to assess the um, appropriateness of a medicine that is advertised in the middle of a golf tournament I'm watching, either with the, the version in which they don't have to list any of the possible side effects, in which everything just looks beautiful and, and everybody looks healthy and healed, or the version in which they list all the side effects as fast as they possibly can because they're required to. I, I don't find I, either one of those, I think, an effective way of communicating with patients. But I have counseled companies to do it. So this is the, this is the conflict I feel is that how do you get a physician to be aware of a new medicine, a new test when it's so busy? Like you're just, as physicians, you're just drinking from a fire hose of information. So you, you target the patient who might be listening in, who might fit that category to the next time they go in and ask, ask their, their patient about it. I, I learned that lesson from the breast cancer world. So the advocacy groups became very effective at educating the breast cancer community. So they knew what was out there. And if you were gonna be an effective breast cancer oncologist, you better know what's going on. So that, that consumer physician link drove it so that no private on, oncologists in general know more about breast cancer, I would argue, than any other cancer because of that. So I think it's an effective way to bring the whole wave along of progress. I mean, the book in general is just very, look, as a reader, I could tell how honest the book is from both sides and how raw it is. I mean, just very honest. I, I, I don't believe that you were filtered in expressing <laughs> however you felt individually or towards each other. Were you at all scared that um, the book might 
grow you apart as opposed to bring you together. You, you do actually write towards the end that it actually brought you together. Was there, I mean, it could have done the opposite effect. Was that at all a factor or a fear, Lisa and then John? Um, I, I don't know that it was for me. I mean, John's over here nodding, so perhaps it was no. for him. But I, while there were things we said in the book that we hadn't said to each other, I think most of the things were, we, we both had a pretty good sense of where the other one was coming from. So, well, again, while things were individually a surprise, perhaps, I don't think the gestalt of, of um, how we both felt was. So, I, I, so no, I guess is my answer to the question. Um, I, I, huh? I, wasn't, I wasn't worried about that. I was, I was looking forward to it, perhaps. In a way how, how did it bring you together? Like, what, 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 how did it make you closer to each other? We do Zooms together. Yeah, yeah. Um, we now have it. Yeah, well, go ahead. I mean, you were. No, I mean, we we it 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 was a project to do jointly. We look, we didn't have to publish it, right? We could have just written it, shared it, and said that we shouldn't share that with anybody. The, the to me, the risk is in sharing this because we do we are honest. I mean, we're telling and and we say the good things and what our perception of the bad things are. So we, you know, so there is a risk of, of all of that. But the working together has been fun. I mean, you know, what a better way to spend a pandemic, quite honestly. We were stuck in this house together for most of it, and and it didn't feel like being stuck. I mean, we had stuff to do, and and so we were lucky again. Just another did, did you You published yourself as a publisher. I couldn't tell. It says published by John Marshall. Is You have a publisher, no? Yeah, Idea Press Publishing, which okay, is that's what I thought. Yes. What was the best thing about writing the book and the worst thing about writing the book from both of you? Uh, the, the best thing really was the the doing it together. I, I was, as we were just talking about, John was answering that last, or giving you that last thought, I was thinking we were very much on the same trajectory, which I think is very similar to our marriage. We we believe a lot of the same things and, you know, even his controversial stuff. I, you know, I, you know, as I say in the book, I, I certainly was on the, you know, breast cancer gets a whole lot of attention and GI cancers and a lot of other cancers do not. And so anyway, for, so I, we weren't, I don't think we were, there were any major disagreements. We have, we have minor disagreements about things, but as I say that the, the book, I think reflects our marriage in that regard. Um, so I, it was, I mean, the being in Oxford was really the best part of it, I think. Uh, but the writing there was, was really wonderful. And, and we really have enjoyed working together. It's really the first, other than raising children, it's the first project we've ever really done together. So that was fun. Uh, the worst part. Well, I know what it was for John, but what's that? I don't even. Know. Oh, I was going to say being edited. Oh yeah, I hated that. <laughs> so, what was it for me? I don't know. I could I could picture that on John. Reviewer. Oh, you know, <laughs> you know exactly. So I would I would work hard. I would send it out to our our uh, we call her her midwife for the book, and we were in, over in England, so we'd wake up to an email in our inbox um, from the oh, night. Track changes. Oh, mine was just red i mean just ripped to shreds and liza you know with a with a c frowny face right and liza was getting all these a pluses and you know good job and give us more and well, but, you, but, you, but you know it's actually pretty interesting because i always wondered and and i i struggle with this myself i think we're all trained to write scientific articles where you're really writing to a medical journal 
And since I started writing to the lay public and, and I have to figure out a little bit of a different tone, and clearly your book is not meant only to professors in the field. You want everybody to read it. So I think that's really probably, I, I think I, I struggle with that when, when I'm writing to the lay public. Um, but anything else, John, that if you think back that, like what was the worst thing about writing this book? If maybe there's not, but maybe there is. No, I mean, it's been the, the, the initial feeling of can we really do this was, was something I wasn't sure of. And it, re- it wasn't really until we started to see it come together that it, that it, that, that feeling went away, that it was, a, it, uh, I've always, I've just expressed to others that this was really therapeutic for me. So there was a part of this that was, was, was charmed and perfect timed and the sabbatical and all of that was much needed. As you know, we've talked about that before. Uh, so that, but I, you know, the grading was bad, but I, other than that, there weren't really entering the book publishing world is, 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 you know, everything has its own language, has its own process. Well, and it's uh, not believe simple. me, I, I'm, I'm in that process as well, but uh, let me ask you th- this. Um, is it going to be a documentary on this? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. George Clooney's playing me. Yeah, and, it's not a documentary. <laughs> yeah. I, I can see I can see it actually I can see yeah, the, see, yeah. see? Yeah. I no no I can I can see George Clooney I can see the documentary yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, but I you know I, I can see I mean I think there's you know it, it, you know I think there are elements of this book that um, I don't believe has been told in in uh, in this manner so I, I could see it but I, I presume you know you'll find out in the next few months um, how that actually goes. Um, John or Lisa, is there anything else I should have asked you about the book that I did not ask or you want listeners to know? I personally enjoy it tremendously. I think everybody should read it and I'm, I want to write a, a review on it as well. But maybe there are certain things you want listeners to know or you want to tell them I may have not um, captured in the interview. John always has something. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say that, you know, it, 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 it come, it's not just a breast cancer book in our in our hearts because it's it's got a big pink ribbon on the cover of it and it's about cancer um but i actually think it's about any serious illness or dealing with um, the strain in a relationship and and uh and the like so we do hope that um it would you know i'd be interested to see what the non-cancer world thinks of the book quite honestly and and uh, who doesn't have a good sense of all of the language and the experience um, and how that will resonate with, with others. Um, you know, because I, I, we, we wrote it with that intent, or at the end, we thought it might just help yeah. others too, in that sense. And, and, and it's the home run if, it, if it's entertaining and people, you know, take it to the beach with them, that'll, that'll be a win. I think it was, it was great read. And uh, we're taping this for context on May 3rd, because by the time this will air, uh, the book will be available uh, to, to, to be bought. I believe it's available today, May 3rd. Uh, they can actually buy it, but this will air in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. You are awesome for yeah, doing thank this. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. I think it, it's really, um, it's, it's a beautiful book. And I'm so happy that you're doing so well. Lisa, and uh, uh, you know, uh, I hope you continue to do uh, very well and continue to give John hard time. Yeah, that's that's her job. She does it very well. So. I just have to express sympathy for you too. I, you're talking about taking care of your parents. I, I'm in the same boat, and it's it is. I mean, that it is its own perspective on the medical system, and 
and how doctors communicate with people and all of that is complicated. So the usual stuff. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks again. That's really nice of you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this podcast. Thanks for listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. I very much appreciate your loyalty and your support. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show, as well as to refer a friend or a colleague to the show. Let me know how I'm doing by sending me a direct message on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or sending me an email to chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can also visit my website, shadinabhan.com, and let me know what you think. And make sure you send me any feedback that you have. I really appreciate your support, your loyalty, and I certainly appreciate the generous time that John and Lisa gave me on this show to share their intimate story and the details of what they both went through when Lisa was diagnosed with cancer. Very grateful she's doing great and continue to give John a hard time. That is the plan. Before I let you go, I want to leave you with one of my favorite sayings by Winston Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Until next time, take care.